I feel like I'm going to be running a dog and po- po- pony show up here with, uh, I'm running like three different sets of notes and t- three different programs on the computer, so we're going to do something a little different tonight. So I'm going to see if I can juggle all of it without totally losing my mind. I got up at 5 this morning, went to bed about midnight, so that was the most sleep I got at the whole conference. I got to pick my roommates better. John Hyde, who's a pastor we ordained down at Baraka about 10 years ago, and uh, been a taper, and he's a pa- pastor in Cleveland, Ohio, was my roommate. And John is one of these frenetic, hyper individuals who can has that rare gift. I wish I had this. He can get by on two and a half hours of sleep a night. Every now and then he has to, you know, oversleep and catch up, and he'll get three hours of sleep. And, I mean, he's just up talking and working on his computer and doing stuff till 2 in the morning, and then he gets up at 4.30 and goes and runs five miles. So I, I'm, I need my seven to eight hours every night or I'm useless. So not having had that for four nights, I'm pretty close to useless. So if I start blathering in my... In the middle of the message, you'll know why. We've got a couple of announcements. First of all, we're updating the church directory, and this is important in case there's a problem with inclement weather and snow or ice. You need to make sure that we have phone numbers, accurate, up-to-date phone numbers, email if possible, cell phones if possible, so that we can get a hold of you. Uh, we also are in need for two prep school teachers. Don't think that, well, somebody else can do it because... Uh, As I keep saying, with a small church like we have, uh, if we don't have two prep school teachers by Sunday, then these kids will be in class upstairs, and they're not really ready to come up here. And then we are preparing for pastor's conference on Monday, January 13th through Thursday, January 16th, and more information on that will come. Also, I want to... um, uh, we need to pray about a possibility of a conference. There is a man, we have this track outside, I didn't bring one in, it's called Roman Catholicism versus the Bible, is that what it's called? It's a red track, and it's written by a man named Mike Gender. Now, I've gotten to know Mike over the last three or four years at the Conservative Theological Society, and also uh, he usually comes to pre-trib, to the pre-trib rapture study group, and he and I were talking this weekend in April, he is been invited to a church in Maine and a church in Boston, so it would be real easy to add us on to his swing, depending on what, how the dates work out with, with us and things that I've already got planned. But he, uh, he was raised Roman Catholic, and he taught. He was a teaching deacon and uh, taught many of the training classes and Bible study classes in uh, Roman Catholic Church until I believe he was 32 or 33 when somebody finally got through to him with the gospel of the free grace of God. He trusted Christ as Savior. Then he went to Dallas Seminary, and he has a ministry that is totally oriented to uh, evangelizing Roman Catholics. And and since about 80 or 95% of the people in this church come out of a Roman Catholic background or family members, I think this is would be something that everybody would be really interested in is to have Mike here for a uh, two- or three-day conference. So we need to be praying about how that works out. I think that's about it. Let's uh, bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use First John 1 night if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer.
Our Father, we do thank you so much for your grace, that all that we have and all that you have given us in salvation is not based on anything that we are, anything that we have done. It is completely based on your immeasurable love from eternity past and your perfect plan of salvation in which you did all of the work and we simply receive it, we simply accept it, we believe it. It is based on a non-meritorious system whereby Christ has performed all of the work for us. Father, we thank you for the fact that, that uh, we have a free nation and we pray now especially in light of the uh, war on terrorism, the impending and the potential war against Iraq. We pray for our president, for our military leaders, for our political leaders, that you would give them wisdom, that you would provide the correct information for them, that you would cause the enemy to make mistakes, and that if there are weapons of destruction in Iraq, that you would you would make it clear that they are there and that they would be discovered and that it would be a, a clear case of, a, of just war and preventative war. Father, we pray that you would uh, continue to... Uh, Watch over those in this church, those who are associated with this ministry, who are serving in the, in, in the military, and that those who may, may or are deployed in the Middle East, we pray that you would keep them safe. We pray that you would make it possible for them to get tapes, to get CDs, to get whatever they need so that they have the doctrine that they can use when they have the opportunity to uh, continue to uh, be reminded of how your grace is sufficient. Give them battle courage. Give them a confidence that they are in your plan and that, that you are watching over them. Father, now as we study your word this evening, help us to understand the important things that we are uh, studying. Help us to uh, make, make, be able to understand these things so that we can make the gospel clear and explain salvation more clearly to those in our periphery. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the interesting things that um, came out of the conference this last week, I just returned from the pre-trib rapture study group. Now, what that is, people always ask me, what is a pre-trib rapture study group? Well, this was originally uh, thought of, conceived back in the late 80s when Tommy Ice and I were sitting around and talking and we had started a ministry where we were publishing a newsletter called Biblical Perspectives, which I think some of you got way back then. And um, uh, we thought how wonderful it would be if we could somehow develop a forum where scholars committed to dispensationalism and the pre-trib rapture could get together, uh, share ideas, present uh, well-thought-out, crafted uh, theological studies and papers on uh, various issues so that we could encourage one another and strengthen our position, you may not realize this, but dispensationalism is under attack from many different quarters right now, and it has been for a number of years. But it seems like in the last 10 years, attack has been that those who believe in dispensationalism, well, they're just sort of a fringe cult. And that, of course, is far from being true, but it is the public lie that is technique that is often used by the enemies of the truth in order to uh, create secondary uh, irrelevant issues. And uh, men like Tim LaHaye have had a tremendous vision for being able to communicate the truth of dispensationalism and the doctrines related to the pre-trib rapture. And that's why he began writing this series, uh, fictional series, Left Behind. And he had no idea where that would go. And it has truly made him a multimillionaire. And he has not just uh, used that as an opportunity to increase his own personal wealth, 
but he has used uh, and endowed a chair of, of prophecy down at uh, Liberty University and Seminary, and he is using this wealth that comes from that in order to fund those who can and provide scholarships for men who can go to seminary and develop the scholarly tools necessary to study and to continue to teach in these areas. So it's, uh, it's great to see that and to see how Tommy has developed this entire ministry and, and uh, to have men like Arnold Fruchtenbaum and Randy Price and others there who um, have such a tremendous wealth of knowledge. And one man who gave an excellent paper on uh, Romans 9 to 11 was uh, Dr. Robert Grimacki. And Bob, uh, I've read Bob's stuff since I was a young Christian. He wrote one of the best books against the modern tongues movement. It's out of print now, um, but it was one of the best. He uh, also had a young Greek and Bible student back in the late 60s and early 70s by the name of Dan Ingram. And he encouraged Dan to go into the pastoral ministry and recommended him to go to seminary. And even back then, Dan got accepted to Dallas, but he thought he should serve his country first. So he was going to go in the Marine Corps for four years, and they stretched into they stretched into 28 years. But it's always good to uh, to see Bob Gramacki and many of these other men. And it's always fun for me because I see men that I've known since, for example, uh, Randy Price, who's now written a number of important books in his book on uh, the uh, Unholy War is one of the best books on the Middle East crisis available today. In fact, I was so pleased with the fact that I saw it at a bookstore at the largest Jewish bookstore in New York. Down, on, I think it was on 46th Street. We were down there about six months ago, and you just walk into the store, and there was this big round display table that you had to trip over when you walked in the door, and that it was there to focus your attention on three books that they were really pushing, and there was just a stack of 15 or 20 of each of these three books, and the one right in the middle was Randy's book, Unholy War. So that is a, it's fantastic, and Randy and I have been friends since, since we were in, just got out of high school, went through seminary together, and we never would have imagined that, uh, where the Lord would take either one of us over the years, but Randy headed up an archaeological dig, this last summer from August 6th to about the, or August 5th to about the 21st of September up on the, and I'm going to get pictures from him. He's going to send me his PowerPoint presentation so I can show that to the congregation. But it was up on the plateau down, down in the Dead Sea area near Qumran where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it is further up the plateau in an area that no one had previously ever thought had been inhabited. But they found a number of things there demonstrating that this was an inhabited area. And, uh, and so that is, and he's going back again next summer and looking for volunteers to come help him. So uh, that's an exciting thing that Randy's doing. And he's also written a, two or three books on biblical archaeology. And he did a little, uh, gave an update on this discovery of the uh, ossuary that was recently discovered. I don't know if you heard this on the news. But an ossuary, it's not like a casket, but it is like a casket. It's a small box, you know, about two feet wide and two feet long and a foot, foot and a half wide, uh, a stone box uh, in which they would place the, the bones uh, of a body. And what was found on the inscription of this particular ossuary 
was that this was James, the brother, Yaakov, the, the, the brother of Yeshua. And that is an extremely rare thing for anybody to be stated as somebody's brother. Usually it is the son. Uh, they're identified by the, the, their father. So a number of tests have been done on this particular ossuary, and all of the tests, all of the dating, everything has come back. There's been nothing that has cast any shadow on the possibility that this does date from approximately uh, 55 to 60 A.D., which means that it is more than likely, it has, as Randy put it, it has a extremely high level of probability. You can't say with certainty nobody ever could, but it's an extremely high level of probability that this is a reference to Jesus and to James, his brother, the writer of the epistle of James. And uh, it's just extremely rare to see that, but it's now considered to be the earliest documented evidence of the existence and the historicity of uh, the New Testament and, of course, the life of Jesus Christ. So this is uh, another thing that's really exciting. Okay, we need to get started in our study. We continue tonight in our study on salvation. Our study on salvation. Now, what we did in the first part of this series is to look at what is accomplished in salvation, what is done in salvation, what was needed to be done in salvation, to look at the entire scope of salvation in terms of the barrier created by sin, the barrier between God and man, and then all that God did in order to remove that barrier. Then last time we looked at the doctrine of eternal security, a doctrine that is uh, one that many people have trouble with, wanting to know how can I know that I am saved. And then we saw last time that the certainty of salvation derives from the promise of God, not from a feeling, not from some experience, but from the promise of God. Now, tonight and probably next week, I want to address the question, what is the condition for salvation? In other words, we might look at this in terms of the question asked by uh, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. So turn with me to Acts 16, or maybe I'll pull this up on the... screen here, and we'll just go to Acts 16. And Acts 16, look at about, let's start, oh, a little bit back, pick up some context. Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he is in, uh, he's in Philippi. And he and Silas have been arrested, and they have been put in jail. And you see the the uh, response to Paul and J Silas to being imprisoned. Starting in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. See, that just shows us it's important to sing. Sometimes people get the idea that singing is something secondary in Bible class or the spiritual life, that what we really need is doctrine. But the first result of, this, of the filling of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. So, And that should be mind. It is a thinking thing. Hymns should be designed to express our thoughts toward God. And, of course, this was, has been characteristic of uh, believers throughout the church age. 
They were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there came a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison house were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened, everyone's chains were unfastened, all the prisoners were released. When the jailer awoke and saw the prisoner and doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Supposing that the prisoners had escaped, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Don't harm yourself, for every, all are here. And after he brought them out, he said, he said, that is, the jailer said to Paul and Silas, verse 30, What must I do to be saved? Now, that is the question that we are asking, is what must we do to be saved? Now, I want to introduce one problem that we address in this 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 question, and that is, what is the significance of the word do? Is it a work? Because some people get the idea that because we do something, we believe that that is something we do, and so this must be some kind of a work. So we will have to address that question. What is the nature of uh, this doing? What must I do to be saved? And they said, verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, the reason they say you and your household is because they are telling him that this would apply both to him and to the members of his family. So the key here, and this is the most succinct presentation of the gospel in the New Testament, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe is stated clearly as the condition for salvation. But some might say, well, what about works? What about repentance? What about discipleship? Aren't these part of being saved? So we're going to spend the rest of our time uh, in this short study, probably the next five or six weeks, looking at the relationship of faith to repentance, the relationship of faith to to discipleship, the uh, relationship of faith to to ongoing uh, Christian life. But first we have to begin by understanding just the basics of what is said about faith. In John 3.18 we read, He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now there we may, it is clear... That faith is the issue. Believe in Him. The Greek word pistuo, which is our verb for believe here, is translated in various contexts, believe, have faith, or to trust. These are all uh, synonymous. John 3.18, He who believes in Him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. Now, let me make it clear here that that judgment is because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God, not because he has committed certain sins, not because he has done certain things in the past, but because he has not believed. So, believe is the sole condition for salvation. Now, one thing we will have to address in, in the next few lessons is what about the person who can't believe? What about the young child? What about a person who is somehow mentally deficient and can't understand the gospel and can't believe? What about people who have never heard? See, the reason people are condemned is because they do not believe. They are not condemned because they reject Christ. Now, some people get confused on this, and I heard somebody say this recently, 
that people are condemned because they reject Christ. Well, if that's true, then there's millions and millions of people who have never heard the gospel, and it's better to leave them ignorant of the gospel because then they'll get saved. I mean, if you're, if you're condemned because you reject, if you never hear, you can't reject. So then you'll be saved. Well, that's a distortion. That's not what the text says. The text says you're saved because you don't believe. So not because you haven't heard or not because you reject, but because you don't believe. And the reason uh, the so-called heathen don't believe is because they have rejected, they've gone negative at God consciousness or they've gone negative at gospel hearing. Uh, but at some point they have rejected what light is in front of them. So they are not condemned because of rejection. That is a distortion of the truth, and it is not what the Scripture teaches. They are condemned because they have not believed. As we have seen in our study, all sins are paid for by Christ on the cross. So the issue is not sin. The issue is faith alone in Christ alone. Without the new birth, without being spiritually reborn, Without the possession of imputed righteousness, without being transferred from Adam to being in Christ, you can't get into heaven. So even though their sins are paid for, even though God is propitiated, even though they are redeemed, even though the atonement is universal, because they do not have the personal change that comes about at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, they are not saved. Faith is clearly the the sole condition for salvation. John 3.36 states, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey, and there the Greek word patho is related to believe because it is showing that that believing the gospel is obedience. There is a command to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not obedience in the sense of uh, doing the Ten Commandments. It's not obedience in the sense of living a good life. It is obeying that one command that is necessary for salvation, which is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you obey that command and believe in Him, you will be saved. So that is why obedience is related. It is seen to be synonymous with believing, with faith alone, in John 3.36. John 6.29 also introduces this fuzzy question of, of, is this, what kind of work is this? This is the work of God, Jesus said, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What does he mean that's a work? What kind of work would that be? And we have to address that. John 11:25 to 27 is another precise statement of the gospel. Jesus has come to um, uh, Mary and Martha. Lazarus is dead and in the grave, and he is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But before he does that, he has a little uh, confrontation with, uh, with, with um, uh, Mary, uh, Martha because she is uh, concerned that that Jesus didn't get there quite quick enough. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So the condition is he who believes in me shall live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's his question. Or not what are you doing? How good are you? What sins have you given up? But do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So belief is seen as the clear condition 
of salvation. Of course, that comes mostly from the Gospel of John. So let's get a few other references to make sure that we are that we are clear. Uh, Acts 15:11, uh, Paul says, but our, our excuse me, the apostles stayed in Acts 15. What we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also. Romans 3.22, Paul states, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So it is clear that there are passages, passage after passage. I'm not going to go into all of them. We're familiar with many, many more that make it clear that the sole condition for salvation is faith, faith alone in Christ alone. But not all believers are, excuse me, what a... Not everyone who is a so-called Christian understands that it is faith alone. There are many who claim to be Christians who have different views. Uh, For example, there's the Roman Catholic Church. They have a particular view of salvation, and I want to read some quotes to you from a Roman Catholic uh, theology textbook, called The Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma by Ludwig Ott. And on page 264, he writes, he says, The Council of Trent teaches that for the justified, now that he is a Roman Catholic, so he is espousing this himself, he states the Council of Trent teaches that for the justified, eternal life is both a gift or grace promised by God, and a reward for his own good works and merits. So justification is a reward for good works and merits. Uh, Furthermore, on page 267 to 268, he states, A just man merits for himself, through each good work, an increase of sanctifying grace, eternal life, and an increase of heavenly glory. The measure of grace must also increase with the good works. Eternal life is the reward for the good deeds performed in this world. Now, according to Roman Catholic theology, therefore, since it's by works, you need to know if you have enough good works to be saved. And on page 262, he states, Nobody knows with the certainty of faith, which permits of no error, that he has achieved the grace of God. Nobody can with certainty of faith know whether or not he has fulfilled all the conditions which are necessary for the achieving of justification. Notice that. No one can know whether he has fulfilled all the conditions. Now, we've just gone through the Scriptures, and they make it clear there's only one condition for salvation, which is faith. That is why the watchword, the battle cry of the Reformation, was sola fides in the, in the Latin, uh, by faith alone. But Roman Catholicism countered at the Council of Trent with the statement that uh, they declared against the Reformers who asserted that good works are only a fruit of the achieved justification. Roman Catholic Church asserted that the justice already in the soul is increased by good works. The various good works are rewarded by different grades of grace. That perverts the notion of grace. Grace means that you um, that it is a free gift. So what, are, what does the Roman Catholic Church teach about uh, salvation? Well, they state, he states on page 312 that membership of the church is necessary for all men for salvation. In other words, you can't be saved 
unless you are in the church. Uh, furthermore, on page 317, he states that this can affect, you can, the individual believers can perform atonement for others. The faithful on the earth can, by their good works, performed in the state of grace, render atonement for one another. He goes on to state on page 356 to 57 regarding baptism, that the, that baptism affects the remission of all punishments of sin, both eternal and the temporal. From the unity of the mystical body, it follows that every validly baptized person, now you think you got by with it there? Every validly baptized person, even one baptized outside the Catholic Church, becomes a member of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. If he does not voluntarily, watch this, if he does not voluntarily and at the same time declare himself a member of a heretic or schismatic community, that means Protestants. Every baptized person is subject to the jurisdiction of the church. On page 356, he states, There can be no justification without baptism. And on page 356, he also states, It is determined by law that nobody can be saved without baptism. So I just wanted to make those statements to help you understand what is being taught on the one side of the issue that in the Roman Catholic tradition is that one earns grace, that one is justified on the basis of various works. Now, that is countered uh, by the Reformation, and yet it seems like there are those among Protestants who have so theologized faith that they're in danger of going right back to a Roman view of faith. And we call these people advocates of lordship salvation. Now, they wouldn't like that, and they would deny it, but let's see what the evidence says. Let's look at some of the things that lordship advocates say about the nature of faith. One writer, Elmer Enlau, makes the following statement. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ involves more than knowledge, assent, and trust. We've studied this in the past. Knowledge, assent, and trust is the threefold breakdown of faith that is classically used uh, in the definition of faith, that it is knowledge, assent, and trust. True, one must know about God's provision, he says. He must assent to the truth of the gospel, and he must rely on Christ to save him, but to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ means more than to believe that He is Lord and more than to rely on Him to give eternal life. It also means to receive Christ as one's own Lord, the ruler of one's own life. That is the essence of Lordship Salvation. People ask me, in fact, one of the uh, men at lunch the other day asked me uh, uh, that question and said, what exactly is Lordship Salvation? Now, it's real easy to caricature it by saying, well, they say you have to make Jesus Lord of your life, and that's true. But And, and it gets to the heart of the issue, which is they view faith as being equal to commitment or obedience. So it's not just a matter of believing Jesus died or assenting to the truth that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I can't get to heaven any other way than by his death, his substitutionary atonement on the cross for me. 
but that I must also accept him as my Lord. And by that they mean master. They emphasize God's sovereign authority over you. You have to accept his, that he is master over every area of my life. And they would take statements like you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord there in, emphasizes his sovereignty in your life as opposed to Lord being equivalent to Yahweh of the Old Testament, an expression of his deity. When it says that you must believe that Jesus is Lord, it is not saying that he is master, but that he is fully God, undiminished deity. Furthermore, another another lordship advocate, Mark Mueller, states that faith is synonymous with obedience. If faith is synonymous with obedience, then that means that those terms are interchangeable. So you could come to a verse such as, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through obedience. Matter of fact, in the first edition of the Gospel according to Jesus, which was John MacArthur's uh, first work on Lordship Salvation, he had a footnote where he said that pistis in Ephesians 2 should be translated faithful, which would mean that uh, for by grace you have been saved through faithfulness. Once again, it gets back to works. That is why I have said for um, 20 years or more that lordship salvation is a very subtle back road to Roman Catholicism. This is a very important issue to get straight, and I've got a couple of other quotes here just to help you understand where people are today. Now, when I quote these names, I'm not being... Nasty. I'm not uh, running them down. These are men who are uh, out there on the front lines of the battlefield and have uh, published many works uh, advocating their position. They are men who are in some cases well-known, nationally known pastors and take these positions and are strong advocates for this position. Uh, John MacArthur writes in his book, Gospel According to Jesus, forsaking oneself for Christ's sake is not an optional step of discipleship subsequent to conversion. In other words, it's not something, becoming a disciple is not something you decide after you're saved. It is the sine qua non, that's a Latin phrase for without which nothing. In other words, it is the the, uh, necessary minimum of saving faith. So see, there he says saving faith is discipleship. It is submission to Christ. So that is how he is defining the gospel. He goes on to say on page 135 that faith, as he characterized it, is nothing less than a complete exchange of all that we are for all that he is. So this is why statements like this is why the Lordship salvation advocates have been accused of teaching a works oriented salvation, and I think that's a fair fair depiction. Uh, one writer states that the faith God begets includes both the volition and the ability to comply with his will. And see, in this case, he says the faith God begets. See, the saving faith that you have, this is another element in Lordship Salvation, is they will say that you are saved, um, that, the, that the saving faith that you have is a gift of God. We're, that's why tonight, if we get there, we're going to focus on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What's the gift of God? What does that word it refer to? And they would say that the word it refers to faith. But the word it there is a neuter plural, 
And in Greek, a noun has three genders, masculine, feminine, or neuter. And a pronoun must agree with the noun it refers to according to gender. So a feminine, pro- if, it, if, if it's a feminine pronoun, it must have as its reference a feminine noun. If it's a neuter na- pronoun, it must be referring back to a neuter noun. But pistis and charis, for grace, are both feminine nouns. It is, in, uh, is a neuter pronoun. So it can't be referring to either grace or faith. So that's really the question is, what is the gift of God? They say the gift of God is faith, so that it's not, that makes faith meritorious. This is, this is the most important thing to understand about Lordship, Salvation, and Reformed Theology, is it basically means that faith is a gift of God, and that makes faith that saves different in kind from everyday faith. I mean, you get up in the morning, you think, oh, it's 15 degrees outside, but my car is going to start. You just made a statement of faith. Now, they would say that that is a different kind of faith from the faith that saves. We would say, no, the faith is the same, whether I believe I have money in my bank account to cover the check I just wrote, or whether I believe my car is going to start in the morning, it's the same thing. It is the object of faith that's important. It's what you believe that's important, not the act of believing that has merit. So the merit is not, in, for example, a Roman Catholic would have as the object of their faith the ritual, the sacraments that they are engaged in, their good works. They are believing that those good works will bring about salvation. So uh, they would say that it, that's the object of faith, but if that object of faith isn't meritorious enough, then it won't save. So the issue then is where does the gift come from? And, and, and Roman, the, the, I mean, the reform view, reform theology or the Calvinistic view is that that faith is a gift, so that makes it another kind of faith. So you can't exercise that on your own. It can't come from you as a fallen person. It has to be given to you by God, and therefore this changes the whole dynamic and has an effect on the view of, on how we understand uh, human responsibility and volition in the whole process of salvation. They go on to say, this writer goes on to say, in other words, faith encompasses obedience. I think this is MacArthur as well. Faith encompasses obedience. Burkhoff, that's Louis Burkhoff, who's a well-known uh, Calvinist and Reformed theologian, Burkhoff sees three elements to genuine faith. Notice how he breaks this down. An intellectual element, notitia. Notitia is the Latin word for understanding. It's related to the Greek word nous, mind. Uh, it's a cognate. Uh, and so it has to do with understanding, which is the understanding of the truth. An emotional element, a census. Now, this is where we're going to challenge this whole statement because assenting to something is not emotional in and of itself. If you agree to do something, that is not necessarily an emotional thing. You may have to really give it a lot of thought, finally say, okay, I agree to it. Think, think about the fact that one of your children may come and ask you if they can participate in some activity with some of their friends, and maybe you're not sure if they should do it or not. You have to give it some thought. Finally, you agree. That's not an emotional decision. That is a thought-provoking decision. So this is this is a complete distortion, and yet author after author, preacher after preacher comes along and says assent is emotional. Assent is not emotional. That is completely wrong. 
An emotional element of sense, as Burkhoff states, which is the conviction and affirmation of truth. See, when he defines it as conviction and affirmation, neither conviction or affirmation are emotional. So he hasn't even thought this, this concept through. And a volitional element, fiducia, a fides, uh, uh, means faith. Uh, so a volitional element, fiducia to trust, which is the determination of the will to obey truth. Modern popular theology tends to recognize notitia and often a census, MacArthur says, but eliminates fiducia. See, he wants to make fiducia obedience or commitment. And this is a problem, and I'm telling you this is a problem that is rearing its ugly head in the grace evangelical society, which has been such a bulwark of teaching the, the, the faith alone and Christ alone position. There are those who have come along and developing a view that volition is not a part of faith. And I need to warn you about that. Volition is not a part of faith, they'll say, because and what's happened, there was a man, I knew him, knew him well, he taught me an excellent Bible study method years ago. Pastor in Houston wrote an article for the Chafer Theological Journal where he argued that that uh, volition is not a part of, of uh, faith because volition is understood by Reformed theologians to be obedience and commitment. Now, see, what he did was created a logical error. See, Reformed theologians define volition as commitment or obedience. And so he's going the other way and say, therefore, there's no volition involved. But see, there's a third position. And we do not interpret volition as commitment or obedience. And he completely ignores the third position, sets up this um, this reductionist error where it's either this or it's that, and because of that logical fallacy, has been very influential in leading some people to a position that is almost known as um, as passive faith. Let me solve this. See, maybe what I have to do here is I'm getting a battery warning on a computer. Maybe we could. I have to fix the power supply. So, is this something like rebound? Confessing sin so that. I can get the the right power. Okay. There we go. That will solve that problem. Okay. MacArthur goes on to say, So the faithful, that is the believing, are also faithful, that is obedient. Fidelity, constancy, firmness, confidence, reliance, trust, and belief are all indivisibly wrapped up in the idea of believing. And so he's going to introduce this idea of firmness. That's, that's there from the, from the Hebrew word amen, something that is firm or solid. You, you believe it because it is true. But constancy, see, constancy brings in this idea that if you're really saved, you will constantly believe and you will not Turn your back on Christ. So, in contrast to this, Zane Hodges has stated that faith is the inward conviction of what God says to us in the gospel is true. It is an inward conviction that what God says to us in the gospel is true. So, here we have two distinct views on what faith is. Furthermore, in his critique of, of MacArthur, Hodges states uh, about the, the breakdown of notitia, census, and fiducia, uh, 
Hodges states, this is astoundingly inaccurate. A census is not an emotional element, and fiducia means trust and not a determination to obey the truth. Furthermore, Lordship crowd, the Lordship Gospel guys respond by saying false faith lacks the element of true repentance and submission to God. That's why we have to study repentance. Thus, saving faith ought not to be defined in terms of trust alone, but also in terms of commitment to the will of God. In the absence of this kind of submission, they insist, one could not describe his faith as biblical saving faith. So biblical saving faith is commitment to the, word, to the will of God. So in light of all that, this is why it's so important for us to embark on this study. Now what I want to do is, as we progress is we're going to start by looking at the key pa- first key passage is going to be Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. The next key passage that we'll get to starting next time probably will be James 2 if we uh, finish Ephesians 2. So turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, I have put this up on the overhead. I'm going into another uh, Bible study program because I wanted to be able to put the entire text of those first nine verses of Ephesians 2 up on the screen so that you could look at them. Now, in your English Bible, it starts off with verse 1 saying, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And it looks for all practical purposes in the English, as if you is the subject of a finite verb, were, a past tense verb. In the English, that is a complete independent clause. This is, uh, unfortunately, a misrepresentation. It might make good sense in English, but it does not accurately reflect the Greek. In fact, if you notice at the end of verse 2, right here, this again. Right there you have a period indicating that that's the end of the sentence. There's no period. There is no end of the sentence in Greek. Verse 3, there's another period. There is no period there in the Greek text. And uh, at the end of verse 7, there's another period. So see, there are three sentences in your English translation. And if you read, read that in the English, you will completely miss the impact of those first seven verses in the Greek text, because Greek does not have three sentences. It has one sentence. The first seven verses of Ephesians chapter 2 are actually one sentence. Now, the reason I do that is because to understand Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you have to understand the context of those first seven verses of Ephesians 2. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Now, the first word that has significance in that phrase is the word for, right here. Now, the word for translates the Greek word gar, G-A-R, 
And Gar always introduces an explanation. So if verses 8 and 9 are an explanation, in order to understand what the it refers to, remember this is our, our word right here, if we're going to figure out what that is, we have to do more than just understand Ephesians 2.8. We we're immediately thrown back because this first word for tells us that the significance of this must, has something to do with what has just been said. That means we have to understand the, um, we have to understand the first seven verses. Now I want you to realize that, that this is all one sentence. This phrase right here in the Greek, the, uh, what appears to be a finite verb in the English were, represents a present participle in the Greek. So it's not a finite verb. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. I want to back you into this and show you why it's important. In verse 8 you have the phrase, For by grace you have been saved. And here's the phrase right here, For by grace you have been saved. Now that is not the first time this is shown up in this in this section. You have the same phrase right here in, at the end of verse 5. It's a There it's marked as a parenthetical statement, by grace you have been saved. So when Paul states, for by grace you have been saved at the beginning of verse 8, it is tied back to what he said earlier in verse 5. For by grace you have been saved. Now to understand that significance, we have to realize that grammatically this this statement here, by grace you have been saved, is is a, a... statement that's inserted in the midst of three verbs. There are three verbs made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him. These are three finite verbs. By finite verb, I mean a regular verb that takes a specific subject. It's not an infinitive. It's not a participle. Whenever you're doing exegesis of a sentence, you have to find your your finite verbs to be able to find your subject. Now, even though you have various clauses and, and some other uh, subjects and in, in subordinate clauses here, the main subject is God in verse 4. God did three things. You have three verbs. God made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him. That is the subject and verb of the first seven verses. Paul starts in the middle of the subject in verse 1. Verse 1 is a subordinate clause. That Grammatically, that means the idea of verses 1 and 2 and 3 are subordinate to the main idea, which is not given until verses 4 and 5, God made us alive together with Christ, raised us with Him, and seated us with Him. So if you just start off with this section with verse 1, and you miss where the, where the main thrust is, you, you can miss some points here that are a bit subtle, but nevertheless important. Everything that Paul says up in these first three verses is subordinate to this main idea. And by the time he gets there, he says, God did three things for us. And in the, right after he lists the first one, he's so excited, 
he realizes that none of this is anything that we have done. He says, by grace you have been saved. This salvation is a salvation by grace. It is a by grace salvation. That's what he's talking about. Now he's going to go back. When he gets to verse 8, what he does is he goes back to this main idea that he, he inserts there, this by grace salvation, and he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now he introduces this whole new idea. He hasn't talked about faith at all. Through faith is a secondary idea introduced in verse 8, so that when he says, and that not of yourselves, that that is not referring to this secondary idea of means through faith, that that is referring to the by grace salvation. It is the by grace salvation that is not of yourselves, because it's by grace. It's the by grace salvation that is the gift of God. It is the being made alive together with Christ, the being raised up with him, the being seated with him in the heavenly places that is the gift of God. So let's look at that. That gives you the overview and sort of the, the bird's eye view of Ephesians uh, 2, 1 through 9. In verse 1, Paul says, you, you, although you were dead, actually, it is a, an anarthrus. That means it doesn't have a definite article, so that means it's an adverbial participle. It's probably an adverbial concessive participle. Although you were dead, God made you alive. And he's going to emphasize our status at the point of physical birth. We're born physically alive, but we are born spiritually dead. In the sphere of our trespasses and sins, it's not by me, we're not dead by means of our trespasses and sins, because it's not our trespasses and sins that's the cause of our spiritual death. It's Adam's original sin that is the cause of our spiritual death. So we were, were dead, although we were dead in the sphere of our trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked. Now, one of the other things that we have to uh, emphasize here is these, par- these pronouns, you. These are second-person plural pronouns. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit who now is working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we, too, also formerly lived. Who is the you and the we? You go back into the first chapter, you discover the you is the you, Ephesian believer, you Gentiles. And he's not going to join them together until you get down to the uh, second part of Ephesians chapter 2. And if we skip down to about Ephesians 2, uh, 11... He says, therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that is the Jews, that at that time you, that is you Gentiles, were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace and has made both one. And from that point on, you talk about we, we the Jews and the Gentiles. So back here he's talking about this contrast between Gentiles on the one hand, Jews on the other, and he's going to show how they're both condemned. You Gentiles were 
although you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world and according to the cosmic system, according to the prince of the power of the air. Of course, this is another title for Satan, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, this doesn't mean that all unbelievers are demon-possessed, but it does mean that all unbelievers are demon-influenced by cosmic thinking. And the term sons of disobedience is a Hebraism describing those who are disobedient. All, all unbelievers are disobedient. doesn't matter how moral they are. doesn't matter how good they are, how religious they are. It doesn't matter how, uh, how spiritual they think they are. They are categorized as unbelievers, as disobedience. They are all the sons of disobedience. Even when they're six months old, they're a, they're disobedient. And then Paul says, among them, that is the sons of disobedience, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, that Jews also are disobedient. We live in the lusts of our flesh according to our sin nature, indulging the desires of the flesh, the sin nature, and of the mind, mental attitude sins. And we're by nature, we're born that way, children of wrath. That is, they are under the judgment of God, even as the rest. Wrath refers to the judgment activity of God on the lost. But God, in contrast to the fact that we were dead, we were disobedient, we were walking according to the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh, Paul says, in contrast to that, God being rich in mercy. And then because of his great love with which he loved us, see, the cause of our salvation is not our faith. We're saved through faith, not because of faith. The cause of our salvation is God's love, God's mercy. It is because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgression. See, we've seen this already. He starts off by saying, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And this is the same word down here, paraptoma, meaning to be out of step with God. We were dead. We've taken a misstep. And then, of course, hamartia for sins means means that we've missed the mark. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. That's regeneration. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him. That is, we are identified with him in his present session in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and so we are identified and united with him and seated with him. The fact that Jesus is seated indicates the completion of the work of salvation, and that indicates that we do nothing more to add to it. Once we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, we don't add anything more to it. So that... With the result that, verse 7, so that... In the ages to come, that is, that's a term for the millennial kingdom, so that in the future, in the millennial kingdom, we will be trophies of his grace. He's going to be pointing to us to demonstrate his goodness and his grace before the angels in terms of the angelic conflict, so that he might demonstrate the surpassing riches of his grace in, by means of kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's what he's explaining. This by faith salvation, by grace salvation he's just described is through faith. But here that's a secondary idea. The first time he's mentioned the means, you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. See, what's he talking about? All the way through those first seven verses into the beginning of this, of verse eight is this by grace salvation. That's what the, that refers to. Often when you have a series of complex ideas in the Greek, it will use a neuter pronoun to refer to that collection of complex ideas. And that's what he was referring to, this entire uh, panorama uh, or this entire complex uh, that is performed for us at salvation. That is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works. Now, wait a minute. If it's not a result of works here, and Jesus said, do the work of the Father, which is to believe in me, then we clearly have two different meanings to the word work. Titus 3.5 says it's not by works of righteousness which we've done. So that indicates the concept of righteous works. Isaiah 64.6 says that all of our works of righteousness are like filthy rags. They're unrighteous works. And we translate that with theological terminology to refer to meritorious works and non-meritorious. And faith is non-meritorious because we're not saved because of faith, but it's the object of faith that saves us, which is Jesus Christ. So when we start off our study understanding what is the condition for salvation, it is faith alone. It is not works, not in the sense of doing something that merits God's approval. There is nothing we can do to merit God's approval. Jesus Christ did it all on the cross. He paid for every single sin in human history. So when we ask the question, what is the condition of, of the condition for salvation? It is clear that it is faith alone. That it is not by works. It is a free gift. We don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. We don't have to continue believing. It is not based on anything we do. It is based on that simple acceptance of a free gift. And once we're saved, there is such a transformation that occurs, as we've seen over the past 11 weeks, there is such a transformation that occurs that it is an irreversible process, and we can't lose that salvation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and have such a clear understanding in your word of what is required for salvation. All we need to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be saved. Father, we pray that you would continue to help us understand with clarity what your word teaches, that we may be able to explain it to those who need salvation, those who are uh, still dead in their trespasses and sins, and those who without faith will have an eternal destiny of condemnation in the lake of fire. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.